0: Hello and welcome to ALERT, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of ALERT, with peace talks between Israel and Palestine underway in the wake of a UN bid to recognize Palestine as an independent nation, we'll speak with author, anthropologist, and activist Jeff Halper about his thoughts on this process and prospects for a just peace. We'll hear from FEMREV's Aaron Vosters about the Winnipeg Group's decision not to support last weekend's slut walk, and criminal lawyer Paula Malley will share her thoughts about the Harper government's omnibus crime bill.
0: Here are the alert headlines for the week of October 20th, 2011. The Harper government's assault on labour continued last week when Ottawa intervened on the political strike by Air Canada flight attendants. Job action was scheduled for Thursday at 12.01 a.m., but early Wednesday morning, Labour Minister Lisa Raitt demanded Canada Industrial Relations Board review the halted contract talks. Raitt effectively rendered the strike illegal, forcing the Canadian Union of Public Employees to suspend any action indefinitely. Earlier this year, the Harper government introduced back-to-work legislation to force an end to the strike by Canada Post workers.
1: Unemployment in Britain is the highest it has been in 17 years. About 2.57 million people were unemployed between June and August, one million of which were young people and 114,000 who became unemployed during this period. Many think tanks believe these figures signify the onset of another economic recession. These figures may increase support for strike action being planned for November 30th by many of the UK's largest public sector unions to protest government austerity measures including pension reform.
0: The Occupy Wall Street movement continued to grow over the past week, especially with the Global Day of Action last Saturday that saw solidarity protests, demonstrations, and occupations in an estimated 1,500 cities around the world. In Canada, occupations across the country protested Canada's own bank bailout, rising wealth and income inequality, the Alberta Tar Sands, and a litany of other expressions of the global capitalist economy. Many Canadian politicians demonstrated their ignorance of the movement by criticizing the protesters for lacking a clear policy prescription.
1: The Associated Press reports that customers of Citibank who entered a New York branch to close their accounts were arrested. Citibank maintains that protesters were disrupting the branch and refused to leave, thereby forcing bank tellers to call the police. A YouTube video shows those inside the branch to be calm and peaceful. Similar action was taken at a Chase Bank location in New York. While the majority of demonstrators remained outside, chanting and banging on drums, a few protesters entered the bank and successfully closed their account with no arrests made.
0: The Obama administration has agreed to allow British Petroleum to bid for drilling rights in the Gulf of Mexico. A representative from the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement argues that BP does not have a deeply flawed record and therefore should be allowed to bid. This comment comes a little more than one year after a BP oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico exploded, killing 11 workers and spilling 4.9 million barrels of crude oil into the ocean. BP is still facing lawsuits and possible criminal charges.
1: The federal government continues to make it more difficult for newcomers to apply for citizenship. Last Friday, Citizenship and Immigration Canada announced changes to the language test that scraps the multiple-choice test for an oral and listening exam. The new method of testing comes after conservatives changed the passing grade on language tests last year to 75% from 60%, which resulted in the failing rate increasing by 30%. These new changes are being criticized for denying rights to persons who come to Canada as refugees or asylum seekers and experience many obstacles to adjustment in Canada, including learning a new language to the level
0: required. Those were the alert headlines for the week of October 20th, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of October 20th, 2011.
1: On Monday, October twenty-fourth, from six thirty p.m. to eight o'clock p.m. in Toronto, come out to the Another Story Bookshop at three fifteen Roncesvalles Avenue for a book party and public forum on the challenges facing workers in Canada and the United States. Meet Steve Early, author of *The Civil Wars in U.S. Labor*, and John Borsos from the new California-based National Union of Healthcare Workers. For more information, contact Peter Brogan at 647-764-1871 or check out anotherstory.ca.
0: Do privatization and corporate bailouts make your hair stand on end? Do you think Stephen Harper is spooky? On October 30th at 6 o'clock p.m., join the Organizing Centre for Social and Economic Justice in Vancouver for Capitalism is Scary, a Halloween party and five-year anniversary fundraiser. Located at Heritage Hall, 3102 Main Street, There will be a dinner followed by live local music. Costumes are encouraged, and the space is wheelchair accessible. Tickets must be purchased in advance. To do so, or to find out more information or to volunteer, contact Jen at organizingcenter at gmail.com or call 604-566-4745.
1: The CCPA presents Stephen Lewis and Michelle Landsberg, as the featured guests for this year's David Lewis Lecture. The lecture will take place at 7 o'clock p.m. on November 3rd at the Trinity St. Paul's Centre in Toronto. Join them for an intimate conversation about their lives, their passions, and the future of this country. Following the lecture, there will be a fundraising social with members of the Lewis family and CCPA Research Associates. For more information or to buy tickets, go to www.policyalternatives.ca. David- Lewis lecture.
0: The film The War You Don't See will be screening on November 4th at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, 252 Bloor Street West, room 2-212. Released in 2010, the film by renowned Australian radical journalist John Pilger examines how the business media conceals the truth. Everyone is welcome. A donation of $4 is requested. For more information, call 416-535-8779.
1: What's behind the abolition of the Canadian Wheat Board? On Monday, November 7th at 7 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, come out to Aqua Books at 274 Gary Street, for a discussion about the CWB, activist Ken Kalternick will be discussing the political economy of Canadian agriculture and the class interests behind the abolition of the CWB. All are welcome. For more information, email umsaltis at cc.umanitoba.ca.
0: That's all for Around the Left for the week of October twentieth, two 2011.
1: Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas had submitted to the United Nations a bid for Palestinian statehood. Joining us to discuss the process and prospects for peace uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict we have with us anthropologist, author, and the co-founder of the Israeli Coalition Against Home Demolitions, Jeff Halper, who is currently on a tour through the United States. So, Jeff Halper, uh, welcome to Alert.
2: Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me on.
1: In terms of uh, Palestinians and the Palestinian cause, how how smart a move was it of the president to, to go to the United, States, the United Nations and push for this uh, bid for statehood?
2: Well, I don't know if smart is the right answer. I don't think he had any choice. The uh, peace process, so-called, that had begun in Madrid in 1991 and went through the Oslo peace process, the uh, the Annapolis peace process, the Geneva peace process, now we're in the roadmap peace process, really bought, brought the Palestinians nothing but, uh, but failure. Uh, in other words... Um, over the years, the, the Israeli settlements have almost tripled in size. There are, today 200 settlements with more than a half a million Israelis living in the occupied territories. Um, the Palestinians have a wall through their territories, through their farms and their neighborhoods and their cities, twice as high as the Berlin Wall and five times longer. Uh, their economy has been decimated. Seventy percent of the Palestinians live on less than $2 a day. And, uh, and uh, Israel has eaten up any of the territory that could conceivably go to a Palestinian state. So in a sense, the Palestinians really have nothing to lose. And they went to the United Nations in defiance of the United States. Uh, and I, should, I, I guess I should add Canada, which has become more pro-Israel than the United States and has basically said, uh, enough. We're not playing this game anymore. We're going to the international community because we know that the vast majority of countries in the world will recognize and do recognize the Palestinian right to a state of their own, a coherent, viable, independent state. And that's what we're going to go for, on the basis of what the international community, including Canada and the United States, have, have, have promoted all these years a two-state solution, in which the Palestinian state, people should understand, would only be on 22% of historic Palestine. In other words, Israel remains on 78% of the country. All the Palestinians want is less than a quarter of the land. So it's, it's even bending over backwards to be reasonable towards the Israelis. Um, and yet, of course, uh, his initiative has, received, uh, has been rejected by the Americans. Uh, it, but nevertheless, I think uh, it was a good move, and it was the only move he could make. And in a sense, it's, it's, it simply laid down the gauntlet, you know. What are you going to do about it? And if, the, if the United States vetoes in the Security Council, the General Assembly will approve uh, the recognition of a Palestinian state. And I think that's going to set off a whole new political game in the region.
1: Uh, you know, e- how relevant is it, even if you acknowledge that, that, that this is an independent country, when you have uh, the United States and uh, you know, right. maybe even the United right. Kingdom uh, maintaining their you know that support for Israel.
2: Well, you yeah, know, I think it's very relevant. Um, the world is becoming much more multipolar. The United States is not calling the shots anymore like it used to. And, uh, in fact, if um, if you have, uh, let's say, 140 countries recognize Palestine, you have 140 countries sending ambassadors to East Jerusalem. What's Israel going to do? Throw them all out, not allow them through the airport? The Palestinians will now have access to international instruments like... Um, U.N. resolutions, like the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice. It can begin to pursue its, uh, you know, Israel's violations of international law. Um, And, in fact, it sets sets out sanctions, because if Israel. Israel becomes, uh, in fact, an occupying power. You know, today Israel's trying to argue that there is no occupation, that it's a land of Israel, and it's disputed territories, and all this kind of sophist kind of argument. Once the state of Palestine is recognized by the General Assembly, now Palestine has borders, the 67 borders, and the Israeli settlements are absolutely in violation of the sovereignty of a state recognized by the international community. And that sets off, then, all kinds of sanctions. It could be economic sanctions. The, The whole BDS movement boycotts, divestments, and sanctions that we've been pursuing all these years will now be joined by governments as well. And I think Israel is going to find itself very isolated, and I think the United States already finds itself isolated. You know, in the last Security Council uh, vote on Palestine on the issue of settlements, the vote was 14 to 1 against the United States, even Britain, France, and Germany. Germany voted against the United States and, uh, and Israel on this issue. So I think the United States is going to have to think about the implications of its being seen as being a, so tied to Israel's occupation and against the Palestinians at a time when it's desperate to try to end the war in Afghanistan and to normalize relations with the entire Muslim world, which is a pretty important part of the world for the United States. So I think Abu Mazen actually has more leverage and more clout, and the United States and Israel less leverage and clout than we normally think.
1: Hmm. Now, I wonder if you 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 mentioned the, the, the military and uh, those sorts of geostrategic factors. I'm also wondering if the current economic crisis, which seems to be uh... striking everywhere including and especially the united states if if that's having any kind taking any kind of a toll on uh, the, the development of this process and and the influence that the united states in particular is, is having
2: mm-hmm. Do you have any well i think so i mean first of all um... you know the question is how long could the united states continue to sell they're not selling give weapons to israel um, Um, you know, the United States being overextended in wars in the region in general. But there's another additional thing, and that is that I think what's going to happen, and it could happen as early as November, is that given the American uh, declaration that it's going to veto any Palestinian state in the UN, the Palestinian Authority is going to resign. Abbas, I think, is going to resign. Or it'll collapse. Because if there's no political process, and if there's no prospect of a a two-state solution, then why is Abbas, what's he doing? He's basically a collaborator with Israel. He's Israel's policeman, and I don't think he's willing to be in that role. In which case, Israel would have to reoccupy the Palestinian cities. It'd probably have to reoccupy Gaza, because it couldn't allow Hamas to come into the vacuum. In other words, the entire occupation is thrown back onto the lap of Israel, where there are four million Palestinians impoverished, with no jobs, no economy, no infrastructure, and that, I think would be impossible for both the United States and Israel to support, to sustain. You would create an unsustainable situation, and there, I think the United States simply couldn't it, 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 it couldn't support palestine the way the international community has all these years mm. and and of course if this all descends into into violence um i think the, the a reoccupation would inflame the Muslim world certainly against the united states because the occupation is really seen as an american israeli occupation uh, i think it would put the united states in a completely intolerable position both economically and politically so the implications of this still have to be played out. I don't know exactly where it's all going. Of course, nobody does, but I think eh, Abu Mazen has let a genie out of the bottle that can't be put back again.
1: Hmm. And um, I also have to to raise the, the to talk about the, the the popular uprisings we've seen uh, uh, throughout the world. I mean you know, even, you know, you the, the Arab Springs, and uh, even within Israel, you have people who are rising up, uh, critical of, of neoliberal policies. And I, I'm wondering where these popular or populist uprisings sort of interface with the tensions uh, within the Israel-Palestine uh, situation.
2: Right. And so far, they don't, unfortunately. In other words, the, um, The protests in Israel that are a revolt against neoliberalism, and they're really a part of of this growing uh, worldwide protest, Occupy Wall Street, um, that's uh, that's beginning to be uh, a worldwide phenomenon. There's now Occupy Vancouver. I don't know about Winnipeg yet, but, you know, it's a growing movement. Um, That, unfortunately, has remained within Israel very much of a middle-class revolt, against the neoliberal system. I mean, that's the good part. But with nothing to do with the occupation. You know, in Israel, in a sense, the government has insulated its people against the occupation. People don't feel any danger. They don't see Arabs or Palestinians. They never go there. So you can talk about Israel and reforming Israel and a socialist Israel and everything else with no reference to the occupation. And that's, that, I think, has happened. So that, uh, in, uh, you know, I think the, the decision was taken uh, that if we want a mass movement that includes everybody in the society, we can't talk about the occupation, because that's, that's a divisive issue. Hmm. So I think it's a, that's a fatal fault in the, uh, in the movement, but that's the way it's going. So far, it's had nothing to do with these protests. Against neoliberalism with the occupation itself,
1: Jeff Halper, um, just finally, uh, given what we know about uh, you know, Israeli and, and Palestinian uh, motivations and and past history, what would be you know I- as this process unfolds, what would be your best um, estimate uh, of, of the prospects for peace? Uh, uh, where, where do you expect we'll be at, say, six months from now?
2: Well, actually, I'm optimistic, because I think uh, Abbas did break this deadlock. I mean, it was absolute trap, uh, this whole idea of negotiations and, and allowing Israel to expand settlements and so on. I mean, peace would not have been forthcoming if we kept in the same stupid peace process of all these years. So breaking out of that was a good thing. Uh, again, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think certainly... Um, the occupation is going to become more and more unsustainable, uh, and uh, and I certainly uh, see um, see a resolution coming, because I think this is a global conflict. You know, like I said, it inflames the entire Muslim world and beyond. So uh, you know, it's so it's so disruptive of the international system. That I, I think it's going, and, and especially if Israel is going to reoccupy, uh, it's going to be so uh, so disruptive that I think it's going to force the hand of the international community. I, I think I think the international community won't be able to tolerate it anymore. And uh, I, now I don't know what that means. I don't know if the United States is going to panic and agree to a two-state solution. I don't know if a one-state solution is going to emerge, which is actually my preferred scenario. I don't know if, for example, um, um, uh, the Palestinians are going to change from a national liberation struggle to a civil rights struggle, like in South Africa. So we might see a a, a democratic one-state solution emerge. I don't know what's going to happen exactly. But I do think that that within a few months, not even six months mainly, a new contour is going to emerge. I think the Palestinian Authority is going to be gone. The two-state solution is clearly going to be gone. Negotiations are going to be finished. The table is cleared. And now, you know, sometimes it's good that there's chaos and collapse. I mean, hopefully with the least amount of violence, but nevertheless it releases a new dynamic, new possibilities that didn't exist before. So I think we're going into a very uncertain period, but one with a lot of possibilities of resolving the conflict in a way that that didn't exist as long as we were in that trap of this uh, peace
1: process. Well, Jeff Halfer, um, uh, certainly uh, we're going to be uh, watching this situation as it develops, uh, but we certainly thank you for uh, providing us with those insights and uh, wish you well on the rest of your tour. Thank you for
2: having me on.
1: It was a pleasure. That was Jeff Halper. He is an anthropologist, lecturer, political activist, and co-founder and coordinator of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions.
0: The first slut walk was held in Toronto in April 2011 in response to comments made a couple of months prior by Constable Michael Sanguinetti that young women should avoid dressing like sluts in order to remain safe. Since then, slut walks have taken place all over the world, including just recently in Winnipeg on October 15th. The goal of slut walk is to end victim blaming and resist rape culture. FemRev Collective is a grassroots Winnipeg collective of young feminists. They have been quite critical of Slutwalk. Here to discuss these issues more is a member of the FemRev Collective, Erin Vosters. Welcome to Alert Radio. Hi, thank you. So what is it that FemRev finds so problematic about Slutwalk?
3: I guess there were a a number of things that we discussed. Um, First, I guess I want to clarify because I think there's been some, it's been a bit of an issue in Winnipeg. That when we we're talking when we talk about spot we're talking about it as a movement as a whole and not specifically about the organizers in Winnipeg so just so that they know that and the community knows that um, but yeah to talk about some of the concerns we have around sweatwalk, Um they I guess starting from the fact that it is a movement that's really based in um, a reliance on patriarchal notions of beauty and that uses some of those ideas that are really deeply set in in patriarchy and how that controls women's bodies to um, propagate ideas about sexual violence in the media. Um, So the phrase that we've been using is that it really, we feel that it really makes sexual violence sexy enough for mainstream consumption, and we have a big problem with that. Um, we think that sexual violence should be an issue in its own right that people find worth paying attention to. Um, yeah, and then we also talked a little bit about some of the some of the racial issues around SpotWalk, which uh, have been discussed pretty broadly online by a lot of bloggers. Um, primarily that. Uh, racialized women are more often uh, overtly sexualized or seen only as their sexuality and might not feel as comfortable identifying as sluts. Um, we also talked about the fact that um, the whole movement basically is allying itself with the police and we consider that to be um, not not really radical enough in terms of how police brutality works as well and, and how the police are a part of the oppression of women as well as...
0: Can you elaborate on that part of the argument a little bit more about contemporary policing models reinforcing these systems of oppression? Um,
3: Sure, yeah. I guess we just feel that the police... um, I mean, I I don't really have any examples in front of me right now, but I know that there have been stories recently around police committing assaults themselves. Um, The police are not to get too radical or to distance this from what um, most normal people can understand, but we feel that the police essentially um, are like the the forceful arm of the state, right? So they implement these policies that, um, that the state wants that don't necessarily fall in line with what works for people. So most often the people who the police are dealing with are poor people, Um, people of color who are breaking rules that are set by the state. Um, Yeah, and they often use violence and the violence that police use is not really criticized very broadly. Um, It's state-sanctioned violence, which is problematic.
0: Can you explain what an alternative to traditional policing or crime control would look like?
3: Well, I mean, I think that Alternatives to traditional policing. I guess I'm not maybe the best person to answer this question because I'm not involved in that activism specifically. Um, But to me, and I think from the conversations I've heard from people in Copwatch and things like that, um, the idea is maybe to move more towards a society where um, we are actually accountable to one another as community members and policing is not required in the same way that we require it currently because or not that we require it, but that we see that we require it, um, because people could live in better ways and be more supportive as community members rather than retributive. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't even want to talk necessarily about crime prevention because I think the way we talk about crime often just focuses on types of crime that um, or things that. Are done by people who don't have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of resources,
4: mm.
3: um, and the people who are left out of that are the people who are stealing on a like massive scale or committing murder on a massive scale um, elsewhere in the world.
0: So as a final question, is there anything, um, is there is there like a positive aspect to the slut walk movement, um, do you think, or do you think that the negatives outweigh any positives?
3: I think. I mean, I, th- I. I think when we talked about it, we all agreed that they are doing a good job of, of course, getting the word out there. I mean, the upside to the fact that they're making their message pretty sexy is the fact that the media is taking it on, and um, yeah, I mean, it's mobilized a lot of people who might not otherwise have been involved in this kind of, um, in this kind of activism. So, so that is definitely a positive.
0: So it's, just, it's a movement that requires more, more critical analysis, I guess.
3: Yeah, I think so. And that's kind of also a frustrating thing to talk about because I, I really don't think that I have the answers either in terms of like how do we strike a balance between um, organizing as feminists and organizing on a larger populist level so that we can get lots and lots of people involved and appeal to the broader public um, while still staying true to our values as feminists.
0: Well, thanks for for sharing your insights with us on this subject, Aaron.
3: Okay, thank you for uh, yeah, thanks for interviewing us.
0: That was Aaron Vosters of the FemRev Collective discussing the recent Slut Walk march in Winnipeg.
1: The government's omnibus crime bill has just been through second reading and is expected to be voted on and passed very soon. The bill, which was conceived as a way of addressing citizens' concerns about crime and public safety, had been blocked by the opposition parties until the, uh, the last election in which the Conservatives got a majority. This uh, omnibus crime bill has proven to be somewhat controversial. Uh, We have with us on the line Paula Mallet. She is a criminal lawyer, and she's written extensively on uh, the topic of the Harper government's uh, crime agenda. So, uh, Paula Mallet, welcome to Alert.
4: Thanks very much.
1: Could you tell me, uh, first of all, you've you've been through the the crime bill. Uh, Could you maybe point to some of the aspects of it that concern you?
4: Well, uh, a large part of the whole package has to do with long sentences, for more offenders in harsher conditions. And that has to do with uh, sentencing more people with respect to firearms offenses, with respect to drug offenses. Um, Fewer people will be able to do their sentences under house arrest. Uh, Everything is calculated toward making more people spend more time in prison. And everything we know from 200 years of experience up to today says that that's a very bad approach and counterproductive in every way.
1: So, um, when you you have these long sentences, uh, what what does this do in terms of actual prosecutions? I mean, will it clear out some of the bottlenecks and the backlogs or in terms of what the uh, you know the other aspects of the, the crime bill are, are concerned?
4: On the contrary. Um, What we expect to happen, um, of course, the cost of all of this is of great concern to people um, across the board because we're into billions and billions of dollars. And, of course, I think people would be prepared to pay that money if they felt that it would improve the situation and actually lower the crime rate, But but it will not. And so with respect to, for example, mandatory minimum sentences, Not only will you be paying for people to stay in prison for much longer, and that's really expensive, you will also be paying for the clogging of the courts. In other words, if I were facing a two-year sentence for something as simple as passing a joint to someone within somewhere anywhere near a school... And that's the minimum sentence, two years, to pin the penitentiary for something like that. I would fight that every inch of the way, and so would you. And so that will mean lots and lots of motions in court, lots of charter challenges, lots of appeals. Nobody's going to plead guilty to anything because the sentences are so draconian that it's, why would they? There's no percentage in doing so. Um, So I perceive that what will happen is that the courts will be ever more clogged than they were before, And uh, what that results in is extreme delay for everybody in the system. And the end result of that can be that uh, offenders can walk free because if they're not tried within a reasonable time, the court will send them home because because they have the right to be tried within a reasonable time under the Charter. So the ramifications of the legislation are far more than just the obvious, what you see on the surface of the length of sentences and so forth.
1: Hmm. So uh, another uh, of the aspects of of, of crime and the way it's... uh, uh dealt with by our society is we find a, a, a disproportionate number of people, uh, particularly, uh, you know, marginalized people in the Indigenous population, the mentally ill people with uh, fetal uh, alcohol spectrum mm. disorder, uh, being locked up, or, or, or for that matter, victims themselves. And I'm wondering, how would you see this omnibus crime bill, if passed, what kind of impact would it have on those sorts of numbers and... Uh, yeah.
4: Yeah, there's no question in anyone's mind that the kinds of sentencing provisions and um, inflexibility that's offered here, in other words, judges will no longer in many cases be able to judge the case based on the facts and the conditions and the situation of the offenders. So uh, when you think about the fact that 25% of admissions to federal prisons right now are people with mental illness. Uh, about 80% of people serving time right now have drug addictions. Many, many were sexual abuse victims as children. The proportion of Aboriginal peoples, as I'm sure you know in Winnipeg, is way out of whack with their proportion of the population. And fetal alcohol spectrum disorder also accounts for a large number of people who are in prison. What that amounts to is that we are marginalizing, punishing, and putting away for long years Uh, people who are on the very edge of society. And what we do know is that if what you're trying to do is prevent crime, you have to get in front of the issue. Don't wait till the offense is uh, is committed and then punish people after the fact with longer sentences. Get in front of the issue and deal with some of these issues that have to do with the need for social programs, poverty reduction, um, all of those other issues that, that you and I have both raised. And that's the way we reduce crime. And you can go anywhere and learn that that's what works. Um, Only yesterday, a big story out of Texas of all places was busy telling Canada don't do what we just did over the last many years. We've learned how to go for the reduction, for the dealing with the root causes of crime, putting a few dollars there rather than the billions to warehouse people in prisons after the fact, which is a waste of time and only results in more recidivism. So we're we're being told by the United States of America, which incarcerates more people per capita than anyone on the planet, to not to do what they did. <laughs> we have to, we're supposed to be learning something from them, and, we're, and we, apparently we're not. Apparently we're stuck in some time warp in a fact-free zone because there's nothing in respect of evidence to support uh, the position of this government on crime.
1: That's uh, an interesting perspective because it seems as if you know the defenders of this sort of approach will argue that uh, someone who's done the, that crime, they should do the time, and you know once they get out, they'll they'll be less inclined to uh, to commit another crime. So
4: yeah, that's the old that's the old argument about deterrence. Um, it did not only deters the person involved who, who might have done the, uh, the uh, crime himself, but it's, it's, the plan is by putting long sentences in there uh, that you will deter future potential offenders. However, we've learned over time that there's no evidence that it works. And as a criminal lawyer, I can tell you, I think, why, largely why. Most of my clients act on the impulse, uh, they're not thinking about the results. They're not thinking about the consequences. They just act on the, the moment. And, uh, and even among those who are actually planning the crime, if they're actually planning something like an organized crime cartel or whatever, their whole, their whole modus operandi is to be so clever that they'll never get caught. So they're not expecting to be punished down the road either. And so they, they, they pay little or no attention to what the consequences might be. Also, the regime that's been set up by this government with respect, for example, to drug offenses is so complicated um, on sentencing that they've had to create charts to try and help you work your way through what the sentence might be. So there's no offender out there that I've ever met who would take, take the time that I've had to take <laughs> to learn what, what the consequences will be of a drug offense at the moment.
1: Hmm. So are, are there any elements of this bill that uh, you think may have merit, maybe in a different context?
4: There are some things that they're doing uh, that are going in the right direction. They've t- they're tackling things like um, child pornography on the internet. Uh, for example, and those those sorts of things are uh, those those are kind of new crimes. And they only exist now because of the internet. And I think some of the things that they're doing there make some sense. But uh, the caveat on that is that there's a huge uh, movement against w- w- this particular legislation because it provides really serious surveillance opportunities for law enforcement that go beyond what many of us think. Um, would be charter-proof. In other words, they can surveil, they can observe and watch uh, your internet interaction uh, without, for example, needing a warrant from the court. So that means they can watch anybody and that brings brings out the big brother concern. So, uh, so there's there, there are issues with that and yet there there's certainly the, the idea of it and the direction of it is not a bad one.
1: So this uh, on the, this crime bill it it doesn't just uh, affect people who are perpetrators of crimes people who may be totally innocent of any sort of crime that uh, they they are potentially targets of it.
4: That's right. You and I could easily be under surveillance if some of these uh, measures go forward, and that uh, that means you're wide open for it's, it's it's wide open for abuse, and you know it sort of smacks of a police state, um, and that's scary, and that's why we have to be very vigilant. The other people who are affected um, by this um, legislation are the victims, and I want to emphasize that while the prime minister and his friends and ministers will say that they speak for victims. There is a large contingent out there of victims, advocates, and victims who are very seriously opposed to this legislation. And the reason is that they know better than anybody that someone who comes out of prison after doing a long, hard prison sentence is far more likely to hurt somebody else uh, than not to. And they are worried about that, and they are also very concerned that the money that will go into building prisons and staffing the prisons Will come out of the programs that are needed to prevent crime in the first place. So they've been begging in parliamentary committees and anywhere they can be heard. This government not to proceed with this kind of legislation. Mm.
1: Well, that's uh, a perspective we don't hear very often. But uh, I, I want to thank you, Paula Mallet, for uh, providing that uh, analysis for us. Uh, You're thank most you welcome. For- Okay, and that was uh, Paula Mallet. She is a uh, criminal lawyer and has written extensively on the uh, Harper crime agenda.
5: I'm Mitch Prolick. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week's show is all about Sacco and Vanzetti. In 1927, the state of Massachusetts put to death two Italian immigrant anarchists. Sacco and Vanzetti became the cause celeb all the way around the world. Like many of the causes of martyrs, there's a great body of poetry and literature and film and theater, and of course, a great body of songs. Woody Guthrie really captured Sacco and Vanzetti. <laughs>
6: Say there, have you heard the news Socko worked at trimming shoes Vanzetti was a traveling man Pushed his cart round with his hands Two good men's a lot gone Socko and Vanzetti are gone Two good men's a lot gone Left me here to sing this song Sacco came from across the sea, somewhere over Italy. Vanzetti, born of parents fine, drank the best Italian wine. Sacco sailed the sea one day, ended up in Boston Bay. Vanzetti sailed the ocean blue, ended up in Boston too. Good men's a long time gone Socko and Vanzetti are gone Two good men's a long time gone Left me here to sing this song Socko was a family man Socko's wife three children had Vanzetti was a dreaming man Book was always in his hand Sacco made his bread and butter Being the factory's best shoe cutter Vanzetti worked both day and night Taught the people how to fight Two good men's a lot gone Sacco and Vanzetti are gone Two good men's a lot of left me here to sing this song. the shoe factory on the streets of old Braintree I'll tell you the prosecutors names Catman, Adams, Williams King. them and the judge were the best of friends did more tricks than circus clowns the judge he told his friends around gonna put them rebels down Anarchist Bastards was the name The judge he gave these two fine men Two good men's a long time gone Socko and Vanzetti are gone Two good men's a long time gone Left me here to sing this song Socko docked in 98 Left upon a dirty street Taught the people how to organize Now in the electric chair he dies All us people ought to be Like Sockle and Vanzetti Every day find ways to fight On the people's side for workers' rights Two good men's a long time And Vanzetti are gone. Two good men's alongside gone. Left me here to sing this song.
5: That was David Rubick. With a great song about Sacco and Vanzetti written by Woody Guthrie and then added to by David. Woody Guthrie sat down and he wrote a whole complete album of songs about Sacco and Vanzetti and it was put out on Folkways Records back in the very early 60s. Perhaps it was recorded in the late 50s by Moses Ash at Folkways, but I'm not sure of the exact dates. But the songs themselves have become classics within the folk world and within, to some degree within the political world. Here's Woody Guthrie himself singing I
7: Just Want to Sing Your Name. Oh, ho, oh, psycho, psycho. Ho, oh, ho, Nicola, Psycho. Ho, oh, oh, ho, psycho, psycho. I just want to sing your name. Psycho, 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 psycho. Ho, oh, oh, ho, psycho, Nicola. Psycho Psycho. I just want to sing your name. Rosie, Rosie, oh, Miss Rosie Cycle, Rosy, Rosie, Rosie, I just want to sing your name I never did see you, see you I never did get to meet you I just heard your story, story And I just want to sing your name Hey, hey, Bart Banzetti Hey, hey, Bart Vanzetti, you made speeches for the workers' workers. Well, I just want to sing your name. Oh, Psycho Vanzetti, oh, Psycho Vanzetti, Psycho, Psycho Vanzetti, I just want to sing your name. Hey, Judge Webster there, ho, ho. Judge Webster Fair, hey, hey, oh, Judge Webster Fair, I don't want to sing your name. Bart Vanzetti and a Niccolo Psycho, Bart Vanzetti and a Niccolo Psycholo, come here looking for the land of freedom, I just want to sing your name. Vanzetti sold fish around the Plymouth Harbor, Psycho was a shoe factor's best shoe cutter. All my sons and all of my daughters, they're gonna help me sing your name. Oh, oh, psycho, psycho. Hey, hey, Bart Vanzetti, your wife and kids and all your family, I just want to sing your name. Oh, psycho, Vanzetti, hey, psycho, Vanzetti, Nicholas, psycho, Bart Vanzetti, I just want to sing your name.
5: Yes, 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 yes. Well, I just want to sing your name. That was Woody Guthrie with I Just Want to Sing Your Name. One of my favorite songs is written to an old folk song called Poor Howard, and here's Woody Guthrie singing Two Good Men.
7: There did you hear the news Psycho worked at trimming shoes Vanzetti was a peddling man Pushed a smush cart with his hand Two good men a long time gone Two good men a long time gone Psycho and Vanzetti are gone They left me here to sing this song Psycho's born across the sea Somewhere over in Italy Vanzetti born parents fine Drank the best Italian wine Psycho sailed to sea one day Landed up in the Boston Bay Vanzetti sailed the ocean blue And landed up in Boston too Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone, long time gone. Left me here to sing this song Psycho's wife, three children had. Psycho was a family man. Vanzetti was a dreaming man. His book is always in his hands. Psycho earned his bread and butter, being the factory's best shoe cutter. Vanzetti spoke both day and night, told the workers how to fight. Two good men a long time gone. Two good men a long time gone. Two good men a long time gone Left me here to sing this song I'll tell you if you ask me About this payroll robbery Two clerks is killed by the shoe factory On the street in South Braintree Judge Thayer told his friends around That he had cut the radicals down Anarchist bastard was the name Judge Thayer called these two good men I'll tell you the prosecutor's name Catsman Adams Williams Kane The judge and lawyers strutted down They done more tricks than circus clowns Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone Left me here to sing this song Van docked in 1908 Slept along the dirty street Told the workers organizing on the electric cherry dies. All you people ought to be like me and work like Psycho and Vanzetti and every day find ways to fight on the union side for the workers' rights. Well, I ain't got time to tell this tale. The Dixon Bulls are on my trail, but I'll remember these two good men that died to show me how to live. Two good men's a long time gone. Two good men's a long time gone. Two good men's a long time gone Left me here to sing this song All you people in Swassos Lane Sing this song and sing it plain All you folks that's coming along Jump in with me and sing this song It's two good men a long time gone Two good men a long time gone Two good men a long time gone Left me here to sing this song
8: If nothing happens, they will electrocute us right after midnight. Therefore, here I am, right with you, with love and with open heart, as I was yesterday. Don't cry, Dante, for many, many tears have been wasted. As your mother's tears have been already wasted For seven years and never did any good So, son, instead of crying, be strong, be brave So as to be able to comfort your mother And when you want to distract her from the discouraging soulness, you take her for a long walk in the quiet countryside, gathering flowers here and there, and resting under the shade of trees, beside the music of the water peacefulness of nature She will enjoy it very much And you will surely too But son, you must remember Don't use all yourself but down yourself just one step To help the weak ones at your side For help the persecuted and the victim They are your friends Friends of yours and mine They are the comrades that fight Yes, and sometimes fall Just as your father Your father and Bartolo have fallen Have fought and fell yesterday for the conquest of joy, of freedom for all, in the struggle of life you find, you find more love, and in the struggle you will be
9: loved also.
5: That was Pete Seeger singing Sacco's letter to his son. And before that, Woody Guthrie with two good men. And right down at the bottom line, it was just two good guys murdered by capitalism. That's it for this week, folks. Solidarity.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonic. technical producer is Andrew Valpy, assisted by Selena Surick, Alert Headlines by Ben Wood Around the Left by Ashley Titterton Music is the Weapon by Mitch Padala. I'm Ashley Titterton
1: And I'm Michael Welch Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine